Welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Dan. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm a stickler for the science. When I first started to write a book back in 2006, I realized that it required hundreds of hours of research in subjects like sociology, psychology, and even neuroscience findings. But around the same time, I started SPEC training, which is a registered training organization specializing in vocational education, and it became apparent quite quickly that a lot of what was being espoused specifically in the business and education training packages needed some scrutiny and perhaps a skeptical eye. I'd like to address the applicability of recent neurological and psychological research into learning and how it can be applied by yourself and your students. Why? So we can all ensure that students and teachers aren't sidetracked by fads and unsubstantiated claims about teaching techniques and otherwise commonly practiced beliefs. So we're not tempted to waste precious time and resources on fancy sounding ideas that can often hinder or at worst harm a student's ability to learn. And additionally, foster the techniques that do work and affect meaningful change on those fortunate enough to be in such a learning environment. So let's start with this one, as it's one of the most prevalent learning myths out there. So prevalent, in fact, that most of us accept it as implicitly true without stopping to check if it's right or wrong. Unfortunately, there's no evidence to show that this theory holds any weight. People like to think that they have a specific learning style, and some may even have learning preferences. But catering to those preferences does not show any learning benefits. In fact, it may hold learners back if it's not encouraging them to strengthen other ways that they have of absorbing information. None of which is to say that we shouldn't provide material in a range of styles. The benefit of offering a variety of information is that it leads to richer learning experiences for everyone. This is a very controversial topic for some people. Many of those who have read the descriptions of being right or left-brained have come to identify with those descriptions strongly. So for them, it feels true. Therefore, it must be true. Telling them that actually we use our whole brains equally feels like a direct attack on that part of their identity. Not only is there no scientific basis for the idea that left-brain people are more analytical while right-brain people are more creative, scientists haven't even been able to find any evidence that people use one side of the brain more than the other at all. In retrospect, this shouldn't be surprising. After all, the world is rife with examples of mathematical geniuses who are also highly creative, or artistic geniuses who are highly methodical. And while certain people might be more or less creative or methodical, we shouldn't pigeonhole them by designing our courses to play to unfounded learning biases. You've probably heard that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but as it turns out, there's plenty of evidence to show that we retain our brain plasticity as we age, meaning your older students are just as capable of learning as your younger ones. More importantly, these audiences want to learn and feel frustrated when they're boxed out of the educational market simply because that market assumes they won't use technology, for instance. But they can and they will, so long as you let them. Now let's talk about how we actually remember. Some of these steps may be familiar to you from previous presentations, with the one difference possibly being point one, retention intention. This is the learner's desire to learn. We then encode the information using a mental construction based on our sensory inputs. Then we take that information and store it in short-term and hopefully long-term memory. But we're not aware it's even there until we try to recall or retrieve that information. 
There's evidence that students' attitudes, both individually and collectively, as well as their self-perceptions as successful learners or not, has one of the largest effect size impacts on outcomes. While not the only factor, if students think they are not going to be successful, this leads to the self-fulfilling prophecy of failure. On the other hand, if a student has a growth mindset, an open attitude towards new experience, and believes that they can and will learn with the appropriate effort, then that student typically does well, which has also been shown in online settings. This suggests that attitude, even more than aptitude, plays an important role in learning outcomes. In related research, there is strong evidence that self-regulation and other executive functioning skills account for almost double the impact of native intelligence-related learning outcomes. This means that being able to focus on a task and stick with it are more important than just being born smart. It also means that a good attitude towards the new online learning modality is vital for successful learning. Professor Tracy Takahama Espinoza from Harvard University Extension School says that using teacher-constructed quizzes, employing colorful, well-designed training materials, small group interactions, and facilitator-led discussions all improve the quality of your session. But don't just do it for the sake of it. Consider how each activity leads to a better experience for the student before committing to it. In my experience, what things look like has a visible impact on student attention. That said, an even more recent study found that using stick figures on a whiteboard is better than having a high-quality image in a textbook, as learners enjoy the activity of watching the teacher draw out their story in front of them. According to the findings of the University of Queensland's Science of Learning Research Centre, consider the flow of your session. Does it take students from what they already know to what you want them to know after the session? For example, if I'm teaching someone about critical thinking skills, I'll discuss what they know about critical thinking and ask how they've applied it. Then I'll show them the models and ask them if they can see how the models relate to how they may have approached things in the past. This encourages the students to want to know more as they can relate the knowledge or skills to future experiences. There is a link between positive emotion and memory encoding. Celebrating a correct answer or showing empathy towards a student who is discovering a new topic while making errors along the way helps to reinforce that learning by improving perceptions, paying attention, and problem solving. Finally, what is it that's exciting about your industry? What is coming up in the future that might excite the student to want to be a part of it? For example, I might share that the future of leadership in Australia has been reported to be in the hands of those who have advanced critical thinking skills. Leading in your field means faster promotions, wider responsibilities, interesting challenges, and increased social value among your peers. Memory encoding converts information into a construct that's stored in the brain indefinitely. The process begins with perception which is the identification, organization, and interpretation of any sensory information in order to understand it within the context of a particular environment. So stimuli are perceived by the senses, and then related signals travel to the thalamus of the human brain, where they're synthesized into one experience. The hippocampus, a part of our lizard brain if you like, then analyzes the experience and decides if it's worth committing to long-term memory. So encoding is achieved using chemicals and electrical impulses within the brain. The neural pathways or connections between the neurons, the brain cells, 
are actually formed or strengthened through a process called long-term potentiation. This alters the flow of information within the brain. In other words, as a person experiences brand new events or sensations, the brain rewires itself in order to store those new experiences in memory. There are four main types of encoding. Visual, acoustic, elaborative, and semantic. And while it's not vital to remember these names, it does favour a vocational educator to know how to address them generally. Visual encoding stores what we see for a fraction of a second in our iconic memory, and then it's moved to longer term memory for storage. The amygdala, which is right down the base of our brain, plays a large role in the visual encoding of what we learn. Acoustic encoding is the use of sound to record what is being learned. This is aided by a thing called a phonological loop. This is a process by which sounds are sub-vocally rehearsed, basically saying it in your mind over and over in order to remember it. Elaborative encoding uses information that's already known and relates it to new information being experienced. The nature of a new memory becomes dependent as much on previous information as it does on new information. Studies have shown that long-term retention of information is greatly improved through the use of elaborative encoding. So finally, semantic encoding. It uses sensory inputs that have a specific meaning or can be applied to a context. For example, you might remember a particular address based on a nearby street name or maybe a particular text by the smell of a library. Educators can use things like chunking and mnemonics to aid in semantic encoding. Not all information is encoded equally. So if information is improperly coded, recall will later be more challenging. The process of encoding what is to be learned in the brain can be optimized in a variety of ways, and they include things like mnemonics, chunking, and what they call state-dependent learning. Now, you probably already know what chunking is. It's been around for a number of years now, and it's something a lot of students and teachers are aware of. Chunking is a process of disorganizing parts of objects into meaningful holes. So we normally break down a unit of competency, or we break down a session into chunks, usually no longer than 20 minutes at a time without revising the way we actually deliver it. And by that, I mean the way the learning takes place. So things like uh, creating a new activity, maybe doing it as a quick quiz or some sort of other gamification methodology. But that's basically what we're talking about when it comes to shifting around the way you deliver in chunks. Mnemonics are also something you've probably heard of. Maybe you use it quite a bit. A mnemonic is just an organization technique that can be used to help remember something. One example is a peg word system in which the person pegs or associates the item to be remembered with some other easy items to remember. So I'm going to give you something now that you'll be tested on later, so by all means, try to remember this. And this is using the word test, T-E-S-T. What does it stand for? Test, the T stands for tell the student what they need to know. T is tell the student what they need to know. E is evaluate their responses. S, systematically review each response with the student. And T is tell them how they can improve. T-E-S-T, tell, evaluate, systematically review, tell them how they can improve. See if you can picture that in your mind for a moment. At the end, I'll test you out and see if you can remember what TEST stands for. Before we get on to what to do, let's start with what not to do. The four examples I've got here which I'll run through in a moment, are based on psychological, educational, and neuroscience research. So let's start with point one. Do not mix speaking 
with writing tasks. Simply put, the part of the brain that deals with reading is closely associated with the part of the brain that deals with speaking. So if you want a student to listen to what you are saying, make sure you don't have something in front of them that you're either asking them to read or that they may be tempted to read while you're talking. For example, having a textbook open while you're trying to go through some complex information may prove to be too much of a temptation for the student. They may decide to read ahead, look for the answer to questions that may be coming up, and therefore not focusing their attention on what you're saying as their teacher. A common mistake that we make is to have a PowerPoint slide with the text that attracts the focused attention of the student while we're talking. So unless we're affirming what is written on the slide, their brains will struggle between listening to you and reading the information that's on that slide. Instead, they will shift their attention between the two, and as we'll see in a moment, that leads to poorer retention. Not jump between topics without linking them by using an experiential tool such as a story, example, demonstration, or questions. Again, if we think about how the brain works, there are different centers dealing with logic, emotion, experience, planning, and so on. If we have a student's focused attention, then generally speaking, these centers work together to create a constructed memory of what you're teaching. But when you jump to a new topic without an effective segue, students can be left momentarily to try and form their own connections between the previous topic and the new topic. In this moment, it's quite easy for a student to be confused or be left behind when you start your new topic. So by creating an effective segue, such as using a story, example, demonstration, or even questions, the student is led more effectively from what you've just been talking about to the new topic. Point three, do not expect your students to multitask. So as I inferred in point one, multitasking is actually a problem when it comes to learning. People who are generally more effective at multitasking, or as we should refer to it, switch tasking, are so because they've spent more time practicing their skill and therefore have generated stronger pathways between the centers of their brain, which required them to move from one task to another very quickly. So professions such as pilot, chef, even childcare worker tend to be better in these instances. But the general rule that we want to apply here is to avoid learning situations where students must do a variety of tasks at once unless it forms a key part of the role that they're learning. Point four is to not overload your students. Cognitive load theory has been around for decades, yet we haven't assimilated it into our curricula for a variety of reasons. Cognitive load theory simply states that when a person reaches their limit of working memory capacity, they can feel overwhelmed and stressed, which leads to poor decisions and even poorer retention. What to do? By encouraging discussions and problem-solving tasks between students, the encoding of new information is expanded to include more senses, different parts of the reasoning centers of the brain, as well as overall engagement. In a 2017 article, students reported that discussion and problem-solving activities increased engagement, helped retain and remember information, confirmed what they had already learned, provided clarification of prior learning and deepened their understanding, especially through hands-on and application-based learning opportunities. Active retrieval requires that the teacher ask questions regarding the content that has been taught to allow students to actively reinforce that learning. These exercises should be regularly planned throughout a training session to act as milestones for key teaching points. Examples of active retrieval include things like quizzes, 
short answer tests, and other direct questioning techniques. Like problem-based learning, inquiry-based learning encourages students to investigate solutions to open questions and has a range of advantages. But the pedagogy must be shaped by research-backed approaches to reap these advantages. So, from a student's point of view, inquiry-based learning requires them to use evidence-based reasoning and creative problem-solving to reach a conclusion, which they then must either defend or present. From a teacher's point of view, inquiry-based teaching focuses on moving students beyond just general curiosity into the realms of critical thinking and understanding. It encourages students to ask questions, and it's the teacher's role to support them through the investigation process, understanding where to begin and how to structure an inquiry activity. So methods can include things like case studies, group projects, research projects, field worker, and unique exercises that are tailored to their students. Now, you're probably familiar with chunking a session. The concept has been around for over 20 years, but recent research has developed key learning that you can apply, such as 1. Limit each phase of his session to no more than 20 minutes. This is the limit on average that an adult can stay focused in a particular learning mode. And 2. Change the mode, not necessarily the content. So at each interval, change the mode of learning using some of the practical tasks or activities from the inquiry or discussion-based techniques. And finally, the last tip to improving encoding is to monitor and respond to every student interaction during a learning activity. When a student asks a question or infers that they are struggling with a concept through their nonverbal cues, a high-performance educator will identify the need and respond effectively. So this means asking the right questions to identify the problem and then following up with questions that prime the student's memory to better connect their new learning with existing concepts. We can probably all recall occasions when an answer to a question we asked in class was actually one of the most poignant moments we were able to recall. We've now covered retention, intention and encoding. The next phase of learning is storage, both short-term and long-term. Our brain doesn't store information like a computer. There are no specific drive locations we can just tap into to recall a specific fact or movement. Instead, our brains store memories in an intricate system of pathways that change depending on environment, sensory inputs, and experiential relevance. So as educators, our goal is to tap into this understanding to enhance the way learners store information for longer periods of time, and so they can recall the information when required. Here are just a few tips, starting with the use of forced recall activities. A number of studies have shown that how well a learner remembers soon after learning provides no assurance of how much will be remembered after a week or longer delay. In these studies from 2008 and 2016, optimal learning occurred when an initial learning session included repeated study and forced recall testing of all items at least four times in a row. Now this may be impractical and labor intensive for even the brightest learner, but the bottom line is, one, just looking over learning material can be ineffective for long-term memory. Two, right after learning an item of information, forcing oneself to recall it and check to see if you got it right works. And lastly, three, conduct forced recall testing of all information, not just the items that were previously recalled correctly. Forgetting to remember is my way of remembering to use regular breaks to give the brain a chance to consolidate new learning. The forgetting part actually refers to actively changing the subject or, better still, practicing a little mindfulness or meditation to remove the focus from the learning points. 
Working memory is something we use every day and it makes our lives a lot easier when it's stronger. For most adults, there is a maximum that we can hold in our working memory. But if you're not quite using your memory to its capacity, meditation is one thing that can help to strengthen it. Research has shown that participants with no experience in mindfulness meditation can improve their memory recall in just eight weeks. Meditation with its power to help us concentrate has also been shown to improve standardized test scores and working memory abilities after just two weeks. So why does meditation benefit memory? Well, it's somewhat counterintuitive, but during meditation, our brains actually stop processing information as actively as they normally would. The skill of regular practice then shows that ability actually enhances focus and concentration when it is needed. Mixing up the context of the learning uses a technique called interleaving. This is a learning technique that involves mixing together different topics or forms of practice in order to facilitate the learning. It's sometimes referred to as mixed practice or varied practice and is contrasted with things like block practice or specific practice, which involves focusing on just a single topic or form of practice at a time. So interleaving has been shown to facilitate people's learning in a variety of domains, both when it comes to theoretical and physical based learning tasks. Because interleaving can be such a beneficial technique, it's worth understanding it. Some examples include using different tools to get a specific job done, practicing a skill in component parts rather than all the way through from start to finish, and mixing theory and practical tasks into one session, and so on. Interleaving works because it helps learners overcome something called contextual interference, where the brain is forced to learn by creating new pathways around the interference, and another system called discriminative contrast, where the brain is forced to recognize similarities and differences between the concepts they're trying to learn. Lastly, sleep. Sleep is not an essential after learning something new, but research has also shown the benefits of sleep prior to learning something new. Biologically speaking, sleep is the mechanism by which memories are stored into longer-term centers of the brain. While there is conjecture over the exact mechanisms at play here, many researchers believe that the function of the brain waves during both deep sleep and REM sleep assists the allocation of memories from short-term to certain longer-term parts of the brain. And while there is still much research to be done, the evidence for sleep is solid. Good sleep improves memory encoding and memory storage. For tips to improve recall, like positive and negative priming, associative priming, and perceptual priming, I'll leave a number of links in the description to resources for further improving your teaching and assessment practices.